This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Schizophrenia and Psychosis Action Alliance, shattering barriers to treatment, survival, and recovery. People with schizophrenia can recover and thrive. More at WeCanThrive.org. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. In October of 1947, George Earl IV, a Navy reserve pilot, was ordered to fly secret missions and to drop cargo over the Atlantic Ocean. He didn't know what he was dumping, but each mission went exactly the same way. George would go to an airfield at the Philadelphia Navy Yard. At the time, the Navy Yard was a massive facility where warships and planes were built and repaired. George later said that when he would arrive, military personnel would swarm all over with Geiger counters to measure radiation. They would hover their instruments over large 55-gallon drums, listening for clicks. And they would do the same thing to George, too. After the men took their readings, the drums would be loaded onto the plane, a plane George would fly late at night, low and slow, to not disturb the canisters, until he was 100 miles southeast of Atlantic City in New Jersey, over the ocean. Finally, a crew on board would open the hatch and tip the canisters into the sea. George said he flew three of these missions. The whole operation was very hush-hush. He knew that the cargo was radioactive in nature, but he never learned exactly what he had dumped over the ocean, despite trying to find out. It remained a mystery until after his death. The radioactive cargo George Earl IV disposed of under the cover of night speaks to the dark legacy of harnessing nuclear power, both for warfare and for energy creation. The efforts to unleash that power have left so much destruction and harm in their wake, with many communities around the world still struggling with the fallout. On this episode, nuclear experiments, nuclear waste, and how to clean up and repair the damage. We'll also take a look at the future of nuclear power and visit a place where cutting-edge research is happening. To get started, let's stick with the story of these mysterious missions and the dumped cargo. A recently rediscovered collection of papers sheds some light on what was in those barrels. Grant Hill has more. George Earl IV has been dead for many years now, and his son, George Earl V, didn't know about these flights for a while. At the time they happened, in 1947, the memories of World War II were still fresh for the elder George, though he didn't like to talk about his service. He had been a bomber pilot in the South Pacific. But every Sunday night, we'd watch Victory at Sea. Father and son would watch documentaries about the war together, always in silence. We'd sit there for an hour, and Dad would just be in tears, seeing his friends being killed. He was the only original pilot alive at the end of the war, out of his whole squadron. After the war, his father became a test pilot for the Navy Reserve. And this is when the flights to the ocean happened. He was assigned to... Uh, take these canisters out and dump them off of Atlantic City. And anything related to these flights was classified. 
a word George Earl IV understood very well. He came from a storied patriotic family. His father had been the former governor of Pennsylvania, who earned the Navy Cross after the family yacht was commandeered to spy on the Germans. So the pilot did as he was told and kept his mouth shut. He didn't tell anyone about these flights, not even his son. But over the years, the mystery and his conscience ate away at him. When he retired from a career in marketing, he moved to a snowy small town in Vermont, where he had a lot of time to think. After a drink or two, you start thinking, well, geez, I remember I did it. Nothing ever came of that. I wonder what the deal is with that. And then start writing letters. George says his father wrote to the Navy and several federal agencies asking about the flights. What was in those canisters? And whatever it was, could it be harmful? Some of the federal agencies responded. The EPA said it was aware of low-level radioactive waste dumped by ships in that area over the years, waste created by the government and commercial nuclear reactors. One official said close to 30,000 barrels worth were dumped near that site. None of it proved to be harmful. But they never heard of planes dropping canisters out there. The Navy stayed silent. They wouldn't reply to him or even acknowledge that this even happened. It didn't sit well. Dad had a personality. You really didn't want to piss him off. In 1981, he went to the media with his story. This is the first time his son ever heard about the flights and the dumped cargo. I knew he wasn't making it up. George Sr. told a reporter, I've got a conscience, and this has worried me these 33 years. Government officials took the claim seriously, but yet again, the Navy said it didn't know what he was talking about. The thing that bothered me was never getting a response, the elder George said. I don't trust our government anymore. It just hushes everything up. George Earl IV died in May 1992 without ever finding out what exactly he had dumped into the ocean and without knowing that the answers to his questions had all been carefully collected, though they wouldn't see the light of day for years to come. The year before the pilot died, in 1991, a man named J. Hartley Bowen Jr. donated a collection of papers to the Science History Institute in Philadelphia. Papers from his time as a supervising chemist with the Navy. The collection itself, I think it's about, about two linear feet. That's Patrick Shea, the archivist at the Institute. The Institute's entire archive, if you were to line up all of the boxes, spans about a mile in length. That's how Patrick measures it. Every so often, Patrick likes to pull out a couple of feet at a time, sit down and sift through it. A few months ago, that's exactly what he did with the two feet donated by Jay Hartley Bowen. I just pulled it off the shelf to determine what was in there to get a, a better understanding of the collection. Opened up folders, looked through pages, but it was just the contents of the collection which really caught my attention. It revealed the answers to George Earl IV's questions, a formally classified story, one that started very publicly. Five seconds to go, and... In July 1946, the Navy exploded two nuclear bombs in Bikini Lagoon in the Marshall Islands, part of something called Operation Crossroads. 
This document here is talked during Operation Crossroads, numerous types of naval aircraft were exposed to atomic bomb blasts to determine the relationship between blast damage and distance from the center of explosion. The donated materials in Patrick's archives didn't include any film reels, but there's a good chance you've seen footage of the blasts. One of the most dramatic uh, scenes from the entire age of nuclear testing. This is Keith Parsons, a historian who co-authored a book about nuclear weapons testing. I think Godzilla 2014 had it in the beginning. I think Dr. Strangelove had it. What you see is instant. The Navy's top brass were counting on the blasts to make a big splash. They had seen how World War II ended with two large radioactive bangs. And there was concern from Navy officials that this new type of warfare could render its fleet and its massive budget useless. There was the question of, well, uh, if we can do destroy a city with one bomb, couldn't we destroy the mightiest fleet with one bomb? So uh, naval personnel began to come up with this idea of uh, testing it on a fleet of ships to uh, see what happened. Who knows? Maybe the knowledge gained from bombing ships today could help fortify fleets tomorrow. Scientists from the Manhattan Project warned against the experiments. Well, we already know the best protection against a nuclear weapon. Don't be there when it goes off. Many thought this proposed Operation Crossroads was little more than a lobbying effort, a catastrophically dangerous one. There was much cynicism about it at the time. People were deeply skeptical, but the Navy got its way. Politically, the tests were perhaps a global demonstration of might to show the world exactly what America's newest weapons were capable of. So, in July 1946, the Navy parked dozens of decommissioned boats and ships and planes in the lagoon, filled them with equipment and animals. Goats and, uh, you know, pigs and sheep, mice and uh, whatnot. They shuttled hundreds of journalists and diplomats a few miles away, all to bear witness to... an environmental disaster the raging might of searing flame, crushing force, and deadly radioactive water is seen falling in a killing mist as the great circular wall of sea closes in on the guinea pig fleet. It was uh, more a demonstration of incompetence than anything else. The first bomb missed its target and looked meager to onlookers in the daylight. Someone described the sound, the awesome sound of the atomic explosion is sounding kind of like a discreet belch. <laughs> and, and that was it, burp. <laughs> The second bomb, detonated beneath the water a few weeks later, created a thick radioactive mist that exposed crew and civilians to harmful radiation. Little was learned. The animals burned. Ships sank. Still, the Navy took notes, made measurements, and crews tried to decontaminate what remained of the ships and the planes, scrubbing and washing with various cleaners, even coffee grounds. It was a futile effort. They then needed to do scientific research to figure out what were the effects. This is Science History Institute archivist Patrick Shea again. The Navy decided to study the effects of radiation in more depth. And over time... As part of this Operation Crossroads, they took one of the planes that was on the deck of an aircraft carrier. A TBM-3E Avenger, a Navy bomber. They boxed it up and shipped it to Philadelphia, to the Naval Yard. The logistics of moving this contaminated plane were complicated. The materials Patrick was looking through, collected by J. Hartley Bowen, 
They detailed all of this. By the time the plane arrived at the Philadelphia Navy Yard, it had been over a year since it had been bombed. Staff at the Navy Yard had prepared a location to examine the plane, a small spray painting shop that had been retrofitted with new toilets, washstands with clocks overhead, but no open windows. They were concerned with any types of openings in the building because the birds could then get mixed up with the radioactive waste. This is where the plane was broken down and tested. So they were taking all the dials out of the out of the cockpit and seeing if the dials still worked. They were they were pulling the cushioning out of the seats to see if if that had been affected. And the chemist who had collected the info, Jay Hartley Bowen, was documenting it all. And he wasn't just concerned with the plane. Personal health and safety issues appears quite often over and over, over again. and over yeah. uh, throughout this material. Um, they're, they're, they want to make sure that the safety of the people and the equipment as well. One of the project's objectives was to figure out the best way to train personnel to handle stuff exposed to radiation, to, quote, develop methods for the decontamination of radiologically active aircraft. So in a way, the crew doing all those tests on the plane, they were subjects too on the frontier of radiological safety education, or guinea pigs, perhaps. They attended classes, were shown educational films, regularly had their blood drawn, their clothing and protective gear photographed, and all of it was documented. They said, look, look, when we we provide uniforms to the workers, make sure there's no pockets, because if they have pockets, they'll bring cigarettes, they'll bring food, they'll bring things that they're going to put in their mouth, and we can't allow them to do that. So it, it wasn't that they were that the workers were afraid, it's that the workers didn't know any better, and they needed to be protected because it was the scientists who understood just how dangerous this actually was. Still, there were some surprises even to supervisors like Bowen. According to his handwritten logs, some articles of clothing worn by the crew quickly became just too contaminated to wash and reuse. This laundry issue is something that keeps popping up, right? They're, they're noticing that the workers' gloves at the end of the day are getting contaminated and there's really nothing that they can do to decontaminate them. Gloves found in excess of tolerance placed in drums for disposal at sea. There, written in pen on faded graph paper, confirmation of George Earl IV's claims. Monday, October 20th, when they dropped six barrels of contaminated waste at sea from B-17, location approximately 100 miles east of Atlantic City. And this is an actual photograph of a 55-gallon drum being loaded onto an airplane. Along with these daily logs, the photos, the now declassified reports Bowen donated, there was something else. Newspaper articles from 1981, cut out by hand. George Earl IV, 64, said the canisters were dumped from a B-17 bomber flying low over the ocean, 100 nautical miles south-southwest of Atlantic City, on three flights in October 1947. The article was written after the frustrated pilot went to the media about his mysterious missions. He described the operation as very hush-hush and said the plane was checked for radiation contamination after each flight. Some of the sentences bracketed in pen. This material was included with the collection, so Bowen would have seen these and said, oh, yeah, we were definitely doing that. So Bowen cut these these articles out. Yeah, he cut them out, and he put them with this material. So he's the one who put all this material together. So it's it's not like we're saying, oh, maybe it's, it's... No, 
Bowen knew that he's like, yeah, I, he, was, he probably remembered George Earl. He was the one giving him orders to do all this. He made the clicklings and then he put it together with this material. J. Hartley Bowen Jr. died in 1999, 18 years after those news stories were published, seven years after George Earl IV's death. He could have confirmed the pilot's story or let him know what was in those barrels, but he didn't. Bowen knew that what George Earl IV disposed of at sea was not quite as dangerous as the pilot feared, or at the very least, less so than the countless other barrels buried at the same site. Bowen did not explain why he stayed silent, or why he saved all of the materials and then donated them to a science museum. His son couldn't be reached for comment, so we likely will never fully understand Bowen's motivations. Either way, he chose to stay mum on the topic, but quietly tucked all of the evidence away in boxes to be discovered decades later. That story was reported by Grant Hill. It's been over 60 years since the nuclear tests at Bikini Atoll. It can seem like a relic from the Cold War, but for the people who live in the Marshall Islands, the fallout is still happening. Not only had these people suffered in the past, but they actually continue to suffer to this day. This is Ivana Nikolic Hughes. She is a senior lecturer in chemistry at Columbia University and president of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. Over the past few years, Ivana has been part of several research trips to the islands to investigate radiation levels. Whether or not their islands are safe today. The Marshall Islands consist of a chain of big islands and 29 atolls, or rings of coral reefs and tiny islands. They are located between Hawaii and the Philippines. In pictures, it looks like a tropical paradise. White sand beaches, palm trees, and crystal blue water. It's hard to imagine that this was the site of some of the world's most powerful nuclear explosions from 1946 to 1958. Before the tests, the people who lived on Bikini Atoll, less than 200 of them, were relocated by the U.S. government. And they were told that they could soon come back. But that never happened. Eventually, hundreds more Marshallese would become displaced. Over the course of 12 years, the U.S. conducted 67 tests. The way to think about it is that the bombs that were tested there were the equivalent of seven thousand Hiroshima bombs. The biggest of all the weapons, and still the most powerful nuclear device ever detonated by the U.S., was Castle Bravo. We saw the light and we heard the strong noise. Survivors described what they saw in a documentary called Marshalling Peace. The whole world, I mean, the sky turned red. It was as if you were under a inverted fishbowl and somebody poured blood over it. Just totally, everything was red. Bravo was much more powerful than scientists had expected, and the fallout reached nearby islands. Ivana says one of the most affected areas was Rungalup. It's often described as kids thinking they were playing in the snow because there was fallout, literally just white flakes falling from the sky. By nighttime, everybody on the island was very sick. 
people were getting skin burns, their hair was falling out, they were vomiting, and the U.S. did not come to evacuate them until three days later. Three years after Castle Bravo, the U.S. declared Rongelup safe and allowed residents to return. But as documents would later show, officials knew that it wasn't safe, and they saw it as an opportunity to carry out a secret study on the effects of nuclear radiation on humans. As a result, people suffered devastating health effects from leukemia to thyroid cancer and birth defects. The U.S. did eventually attempt a couple of cleanups on different islands. They were far from thorough. The government also paid millions in settlement money. But to many Marshallese, it feels like the damage done was never fully acknowledged or repaired. During one of their visits, Ivana's husband had a conversation with a Marshallese senator who was also a survivor of the testing. And he asked, who would you trust to tell you if the islands are safe today? And the senator responded, I don't know. That conversation put Ivana on a mission to give the Marshallese answers they could trust. She ended up leading a team of Columbia researchers and students to measure gamma radiation levels on the northern atolls. Just before we were heading out, One of the students came to my office and said, and I'll never forget this, I don't know why we're going, we're not going to find anything. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, I just looked at some of these Department of Energy references and we will find zero gamma radiation on all of these islands that we're going to. And I said to her, I said, that would be great. That would be wonderful. We'll tell them, you know, there's no radiation. You should go back. And unfortunately, that's not what we saw. The results they found were mixed. Some spots were safe, while others had high levels of radiation. In subsequent research trips, they looked at the soil and food sources, and they found a lot of them had radiation levels that were unsafe, especially for infants and pregnant women. So to us, that was one example, one clear signal that this island needs to be cleaned up before people can return there. Their findings were published in scientific journals, and Ivana has been urging the U.S. government to take the next step, to allocate funding for continued research and cleanup. Maybe most importantly, Ivana says, we need to look at what happened on the Marshall Islands as a lesson. What we have today in the world is actually not about just destroying one city and killing on the order of hundreds of thousands or even millions of people. What we have today in the world could end human civilization as we know it. And that to me is both, one, unacceptable, and two, just unacceptable for scientists not to be involved in actually getting rid of these weapons. Ivana Nikolic Hughes is a senior lecturer in chemistry at Columbia University and the president of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. We're talking about the challenging issues around cleaning up nuclear waste. Coming up, we'll take a look at some potential solutions. If we do not find a place for this waste, we cannot do anything with it. It will stay for our children and grandchildren. That's next on The Pulse.
This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. It's called protein degradation. And if you're a bad protein in a cancer cell, you'd better get your affairs in order. Because now, thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. This approach is making a difference in multiple myeloma and other blood cancers and is how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Your employees are more than your coworkers. They're the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers modern group benefits designed to protect employees and their families with dental, vision, life, and disability coverage. Humana knows every employee and every business is unique. That's why they listen to your needs and build plans with you and your team in mind. That's the power of human care. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We just heard about the devastating effects of the nuclear bomb experiments in the Marshall Islands. But the fallout from America's efforts to build nuclear weapons can be seen much closer to home, in the western region of the U.S., where the country's largest Native American reservation, the Navajo Nation, is located. The land spreads from Arizona to New Mexico and Utah, covering about 16 million acres. Picture vast stretches of desert with stunning rock formations. But this beautiful landscape carries an invisible burden, radiation from more than 500 uranium mines. The mining started in the 1940s under the U.S. military's Manhattan Project to be used in nuclear weapons. A new documentary film called Navajo Nation USA captures the damaging effects these mines continue to have on the Navajo people. The mines stopped operating by 1986, but they were not properly closed. These companies that were digging waste, they folded or they went bankrupt or else they just went away and they didn't clean up uh, these mines. I talked to Jonathan Nez. He's the former president of the Navajo Nation, and he's featured in the documentary. Who is responsible for cleaning up these mines? That responsibility now shifts to the U.S. EPA and the federal government, and they're still open today. And we get much wind in the southwest. We get a lot of rain. Rain takes some of these uranium deposits into other areas. 
uh, of the Navajo Nation and even goes into the water table. And every time it blows up, it goes up in the atmosphere and we breathe it in. The film focuses on the connection between the mines and high cancer rates in the community. They just m- made the money and off they went and left us with nothing. We have been dehumanized. We have been displaced and disproportionately impacted by adverse health disparities. So this is not right. It brings anger because I am 64 years old now. When they first came, I was only 12. Jonathan Nez says the Navajo Nation had no say over these mines coming to their land in the first place. We have a special relationship with the federal government. There's over 500 Indian or tribal communities throughout the country. And many of those tribal nations are federally held in trust by the federal government. And so a lot of those decisions that are made for these federal trust lands are either by congressional action or by presidential proclamation through executive orders. And it only takes, uh, you know, the federal government to say yay or nay. What does it take to properly close up one of these mines? What needs to happen? Oh, gosh. (laughs) That's a great question. You know, I've been in office for over 18 years, and we've been getting some of these mines remediated, cleaned up, One mine alone, remember, there's over 500 uranium mines that are open. One mine would cost millions of dollars. I remember one in Oljato, Utah, Skyline Mine, over $5 million to clean just that one. That was a very small mine up, you know, and and you can do the math. The question always comes to where do we, if we're going to clean it up, where are we going to take the waste? You know, it's just that not in my backyard, you know, NIMBY. Nobody wants this waste in their backyard, and that's always a challenge. Where are we going to deposit the waste? Has this issue made some people want to leave? Because it is this invisible threat that always looms and hangs in the air. It's in the earth. Yeah, but where are they going to go to? I mean, they've been there. Families have been there for generations, we are a people that are proud of who we are, our land. The Creator put us within the four sacred mountains, and so there's really no other place to go. That was our homeland even before the extraction of uranium. And no, our, our people, those families that live close to those mines, that's all they have. That's their homeland. The Navajo community is still working with the U.S. government to find a solution to uranium waste. In the meantime, they have opened the first-ever cancer treatment facility on reservation land. The hope is to give people faster access to care. Jonathan Nez is the former president of the Navajo Nation. He's featured in a documentary called Navajo Nation USA. The film was directed by Darren Abram and produced by Kim Tiboldo. When it comes to cleaning up radioactive materials, the million-dollar question is always, 
where to put it. That is also true for the waste from nuclear power plants. Across the U.S., 92 nuclear reactors power millions of homes. And these reactors produce waste in the form of spent nuclear fuel, which is still radioactive. Right now, the U.S. stores this spent fuel in giant concrete cylinders next to power stations. But that is not a long-term solution. Alan Yu reports. Right now, spent nuclear fuel in the U.S. goes into big cylinders. They are more than 10 feet tall with layers of concrete and stainless steel several inches thick. I went to a factory on the banks of the Delaware River in New Jersey. There, the company Holtec International makes these containers for nuclear power plants in the U.S. and all around the world. The very first thing that nuclear engineer and chief commercial officer Joy Russell told me is that the spent nuclear fuel is solid and not neon green liquid, like you might have seen on TV. So I actually have not watched The Simpsons, but I understand that a lot of this explanation that you have to give is because of The Simpsons. That is correct. It's unfortunate that the perception of what nuclear waste looks like is from The Simpsons. Indeed, that's completely false. Spent nuclear fuel is a solid ceramic encased in sealed tubes. The second thing she made very clear is that the concrete cylinders that hold the spent nuclear fuel, they call them overpacks, these things are safe and are designed to keep the radiation away from people and the environment. We have modeled a 767 aircraft and also an F-16 aircraft crashing into an array of the overpacks. And there is no release of radioactive material in even under an event of such force. They tested this at a U.S. Army site. They shot a missile into one of their containers at 600 miles per hour. The container did not crack. The factory is huge, about the size of eight football fields. I went inside to see how they make these missile and airplane-proof containers that have held spent nuclear fuel in the U.S. and around the world for decades. The factory is on a single floor, like a giant airplane hangar, with cranes overhead that can lift hundreds of tons. A siren goes off when one of these heavy objects is in the air. I walked past people welding and handling steel cylinders and lids that make up the containers. Alan Hickman, the vice president of manufacturing and supply chain, was my guide. This is a lid for one of our dry storage components. This is nine and three quarter inch thick solid stainless steel. At one end of the factory, he shows me a room that looks like it's big enough to hold a car. This is where the finished containers go through an x-ray to check for internal defects. This will go inside the x-ray booth, and this will automatically take a picture every 12 inches, uh, almost the same way as going to a dentist. The containers look solid, and they are made to withstand all kinds of pressures. But some experts are worried that nothing is strong enough to withstand the test of time. Eventually, they will begin to leak. Welds do break down over time. Geologist Alison McFarlane used to chair the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. 
Now she is director of the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at the University of British Columbia in Canada. We suspect they'll last for decades. We don't know how many decades. We don't think they'll last for hundreds of years. So this is not a long-term solution. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission licenses these concrete cylinders for up to 40 years. The manufacturer, Holtec, says they can last longer than that. But Allison says physics is not going to change. There is no designing our way out of this nuclear waste issue. People have thought of a a variety of crazy schemes for dealing with nuclear waste, things like shooting it into outer space or whatnot, but we aren't very good at getting rockets up without them blowing up. And so we don't want to strew all this material around our atmosphere. The best plan that scientists have come up with is to make what is called a deep geologic repository. Putting this material deep, and by deep I mean four to 500 meters below the surface of the Earth, down so that it's away from humans and the environment for many, many millennia. Because this material will remain radioactive for hundreds of thousands and millions of years. Ideally, this geologic repository would be far from any earthquakes, volcanoes, or moving water. The layers of steel and concrete and rock and soil will contain the radiation. We are blessed with an enormous country, and there are plenty of locations that would be very adequate. That's not what should worry us. Okay, What should worry us, and what has been the sticking point up to now, is the societal political piece of things. As you may imagine, states are not clamoring to be the home of a giant underground hole for nuclear waste. The U.S. government has known about this need to find a safe repository for nuclear waste for decades, but it has been slow to act. And money does not seem to be the obstacle in this case. For years, companies that run nuclear power plants paid the government a fee specifically to cover the cost of a long-term waste repository. But the U.S. government later treated it like tax revenue and used the money to pay for other things. Congress passed a law in 1987, put decades of work and billions of dollars to set up Yucca Mountain, Nevada to become a geologic repository. That did not go over well with people in Nevada. And importantly, it did not go over well with representatives of Nevada in Congress. Known in Nevada as the Screw Nevada Bill. We call that the Screw Nevada Bill. In the 30 years since Congress passed the Screw Nevada Bill. The effort stopped in 2009. Rod Ewing has talked to people in Congress about this issue for years. He's a professor of geological sciences at Stanford University. And he used to chair the Nuclear Waste Technical Review Board under President Obama. What I discovered is in going into a briefing, it would be common for someone to say, well, thanks for all this work, but how is this going to impact my budget? I don't want to read the whole thing, but uh, could you just put yellow tabs where this idea is going to impact my budget? Or uh, a criticism that might end up in the newspapers and prove to be embarrassing. Rod and geologist Allison McFarlane wrote an op-ed recently pointing out the U.S. has 88,000 metric tons of spent fuel in nuclear power plants in around 30 states. 
and adds 2,000 tons each year. They also point out the U.S. cannot avoid this problem even if power companies have more advanced, smaller reactors. The U.S. is struggling to set up a geologic repository, but other countries have succeeded. Sweden picked a site for theirs last year. Nuclear power is a major source of electricity there. Saida Engström worked for a Swedish company that has only one job, manage nuclear waste. She says finding a site was not easy. It took more than 20 years. I had some bad days when I had people shouting at my face, four centimeters from my face, and when I had to go to uh, uh, debates and people would say half-truth and or whole lies. She says it ultimately worked out because of three things. Sweden has a dedicated organization dealing with nuclear waste. They get specific government funding. They only consider places that wanted to have a geologic repository. And these places could back out at any time. And we just had the polls for the municipality of Posthammer, where the final repository will be constructed very soon. And the encapsulation facility in Oskarshamn, another municipality. And it was around 86% that feel comfortable and safe and welcome the facilities to be constructed. For years, she and her team went around the country. They held meetings, big and small. We had meetings in the kitchens of people, in the parish house, in schools. And we explained to them what the project is about and and all that. She says ultimately she would explain it like this. If we do not find a place for this waste on the long term, we cannot do anything with it. We cannot export it. It will stay for our children and grandchildren. She says at that point, usually a room full of people goes completely silent. And then the discussion begins. In the U.S., a long-term solution or location has not yet come into view. So for now, the nuclear waste will await its final destination in those thick concrete barrels. That story was reported by Alan Yu. Coming up, even though the waste issue remains a problem with nuclear energy, it's still an important power source in the U.S. We'll take a look at the future of nuclear energy. We can build them in factories, uh, the way we make cars. We can transport them in standard roads. That's next on The Pulse. This episode's sponsor is PwC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PwC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud. Fuel innovation with responsible AI and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of the new equation from PwC. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. 
Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives. Empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Polls. I'm Mike and Scott. We've been talking about the challenging issue of nuclear waste. And even though that remains unresolved in many ways, nuclear power is still a major energy source in the U.S. It provides almost half of the country's carbon-free electricity. But many of the massive nuclear power plants that were built in the 1970s and 80s have shut down. Others are scheduled to retire in a few decades. The future of nuclear energy could look very different and much smaller. Susan Phillips visited a Department of Energy lab in Idaho to find out what's next. The Idaho National Laboratory sits on the flat, high desert of the state's southeast corner. About 100 miles southwest of Yellowstone, the dusty land is covered in sagebrush. You can see snow-capped volcanic buttes rising from miles away. About 5,700 people work here at the site, some in silver domes that house reactors, others in windowless buildings surrounded by barbed wire. Watch your step going through here, please. Doug Crawford runs the Transient Reactor Test Facility, or TREAT, It's like vehicle crash tests for nuclear reactors. They try to simulate accidents in order to generate a meltdown. All right, so what you see here right next to you is the treat reactor. It's at this sprawling facility that the first electricity-generating nuclear reactor was built and tested, illuminating four light bulbs. That was in 1951. Since then, 52 nuclear reactors were built and tested at the site, the last one in 1973. So if you'll follow me, we'll walk past the reactor over to the other side of the high bay, and we'll show you where we're going to be building. Fast forward 50 years, and now they are developing a much smaller, safer, and portable nuclear reactor. It's called Marvel, and the hope is that it could be loaded onto a truck ship to a disaster zone, or help power a remote village in Alaska. What we're talking about here is historic in the U.S. and urgent 
in terms of demands for clean energy. John Wagner is the director of the Idaho National Labs. The first few reactors are going to be very, very small. They're going to be involved in learning how to do this again and demonstrating the technologies to provide confidence for future deployments. The Marvel micro-nuclear reactor is the brainchild of 36-year-old Yasser Arafat. Marvel is actually an acronym. It's a very long acronym. It stands for the Micro-Reactor Applications Research, Validation, and Evaluation Project. Application, or using the reactor not simply for testing purposes, is key. Where we're going to try to figure out how we extract heat and energy from a nuclear reactor and apply it uh, and combine it with solar and wind and other energy sources. The reactor itself is tiny, at least in the world of nuclear power. It will be about the size of a sedan and can fit onto the back of an 18-wheeler. Weighing about 2,000 pounds, it will be made up of 3,800 parts and built from scratch here at the Idaho Labs. Unlike the massive nuclear projects of the past that include giant concrete cooling towers, the Marvel is designed to provide carbon-free energy to remote areas not attached to any power grid. Remote locations that often rely on dirty diesel engines. When we turn on the light switch in our homes, it turns on right away, right? So we take it for granted after a while, but it's not the same for the remainder of the world. There's about 7 billion people on this planet, about 2.5 billion out of 7 does not have access to electricity. Yasser says there are three key advantages to this new design. We can build them in factories, uh, the way we make cars, we can transport them in standard roads. Uh, And the third, which is the most important one, they have to be self-regulating, right? We cannot have hundreds of people the way we run larger power plants. For these smaller systems, they have to be so automated that we don't require human interaction to actually ensure they can be run safely and they can be run properly and reliably. Safety, of course, is what comes to mind for most people at the thought of trucking a nuclear reactor down a highway or putting one in a small village in Alaska. Yasser says the fuel for the Marvel is the same fuel used at about two dozen universities across the country that have had test reactors for decades. And because of the reactor's size, it doesn't need a containment building. The radioactive fuel rods are protected with several layers of stainless steel. Everything remains intact no matter what the condition is. Whether you have a seismic, an earthquake, whether you have a pipe break or a major leak, whether you have loss of power on the offsite, under any of these circumstances, the reactor remains as benign as a university research reactor. The danger with nuclear power is overheating. Unlike a coal or natural gas plant, If you turn off a nuclear plant, the heat continues to get generated. That's why large nuclear plants are located near a body of water. Water is used as a coolant. But the primary coolant for the Marvel reactor is a liquid metal that does not need mechanical parts, but instead relies on natural circulation. Any excess heat is then cooled by air. Why is that important? Because air is everywhere, right? Basically, when you put this reactor anywhere, you turn it off, you don't have to worry about providing active cooling. The air will naturally cool itself down. So not that these accidents are possible, but if they happen, even one in a million chance, nothing is the consequence. Okay? So it is very, very benign from a safety perspective. 
But Ed Lyman, director of nuclear power safety for the Union of Concerned Scientists, calls the idea of Marvel and other microreactors utterly insane and likely to go nowhere. Lyman says it's a myth that these microreactors could be safer than any other type of reactor. And he says they're cost prohibitive, so it's just not worth it. The Marvel will generate about 20 kilowatts of electricity. That's only enough to power 10 to 20 homes. The lab does not develop technology for its own use, but to share it with U.S. companies that would develop it at scale. Yasser admits building a micro-reactor is not easy. My hope is companies would actually take this, leverage this technology, and actually be able to come up with commercial versions that can be cost competitive with solar, wind, and oil and gas, and be able to deploy them everywhere. That jump is not an easy jump. The cost is about $81 million for design, construction, two years of operation, and decommissioning. Yasser says that's modest for a nuclear reactor. And since it's the first one, others can be factory built and cost less. There are so many companies out there that are working on microreactors. At least some of them have to be successful. So the way I see the future, we're going to be making these microreactors so safe, so benign, but also economically feasible that it can be widespread around not just the U.S., but around the world. The lab plans to complete the Marvel reactor next year when it would power the world's first nuclear microgrid at the site. For The Pulse, I'm Susan Phillips. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tong, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Alan Hinnich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort, journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now.
And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.